to, I, I think that we just need to tweak what exists by like 15, 20% rather than like scorched earth and like saying, hey, we got to start from ground zero. And I think that would allow a lot more people that have a lifetime of experience when it comes to coordinating users in a fictional universe because a DAO is really just like a multiplayer video game, but it's inverted where the game is actually in real life. What would the world look like if decisions were made by the people for the people? Dow or Never is here to break down how DAOs are disrupting traditional power structures and transforming the way we interact. If you're ready, let's get into today's episode. Welcome to Dow or Never, the show designed to help you learn about the rapidly evolving world of DAOs. You'll hear from leaders, innovators in the DAO and Web3 world and discover how they've taken their passions and leveraged the power of DAOs to grow and empower their communities. DAO or Never is produced by Logos DAO, the DAO exchange that helps people find and engage with DAOs. I'm Yaler Moon, the chief vibes cultivator of Logos. I'm here with Isaac Patka, the original summoner of Logos DAO. Today, we are speaking with James Young, the co-founder and CEO of Abridged, creators of Collabland. He's been a developer for over 20 years, has had three successful startup exits in video streaming and social games. His Web3 experience includes co-authoring a white paper on token curated registries and helping launch the original Moloch and Meta Cartel DAOs. We're really excited to be speaking with James today because of his extensive experience in both Web2 and Web3. As much as Web3 builders are looking to create something different, we know that understanding the Web2 world, what it did well, where it fell short, is essential to improving and creating a better Web3. With that in mind, James, can you share a little bit about your background pre-blockchain, how you came to Collabland and Abridged? Yeah. First off, thanks for having me. Grateful and appreciative to be here. My background started in video streaming. So this is pre-YouTube. So back in the day, before broadband penetration, you had these little small poster stamp videos. So back then it was Windows, Media, QuickTime, and Reel. And so was dealing with, on the tech side, how do you make video more accessible? And uh, my main research was in what's called the multicast backbone. So this was a precursor to IPv6, which is a, a technology, like underlying, you know, just internet or protocol, right? Version 4 is what predominates, and we're moving to version 6. And it was taking this point-to-point -point transmission and make it more broadcast or multicast friendly. From there, and with all of that kind of infrastructure building, that lended me toward what now is a defunct technology called flash video. So flash video was the real first kind of technology that allowed you to embed video in a web page. So this is pre-HTML5. Is, is that where I see these like broken flash things on websites sometimes where I'm like, what is this and why is it not working? Yeah, that's right. That's right. And a lot of it was really interesting because the flash IDE uh, was this mix of coding and graphic design all kind of bundled into one. And with my experience on backend technologies and dealing with flash, they had their own programming language called ActionScript. So they had moved from ActionScript 2 to ActionScript 3. With that was a rise of social games. So from video streaming, I had a startup that was acquired, and uh, this company called Zynga was up and coming. I was like, 
Zynga was like 150 people at the time. And I was like, what? This is a, this is not a startup. This is like an enterprise corporation. I went and I joined it though, because I was really fascinated with the social aspect of gaming. And I helped refactor one of their flagship games, Zynga Hold'em Poker, as they moved from ActionScript to ActionScript 3. And they're like, oh, you did a decent job. Do you want to head this like studio? And I was like, okay, cool. Well, you know, they had just come out of this multi-million dollar flash-based game that was supposed to be a Diablo clone, and it failed miserably. But they're like, okay, we think that Flash and social games may have a chance because at that time, there was a game called Mafia Wars where you just like clicked a button and it was just printing money. And so I was like, okay, let's do this. And they're like, you have eight weeks to deliver a game. So I was like, okay, how do I deliver a game in eight weeks? We bought a, a studio called My Mini Life, and we launched a game called Farmville. And from that, what was interesting was, and this is going to get a little nerdy or technical, when I was doing my video streaming startup, like at that time, AWS was not a thing. Cloud was not a thing. And you had to go to a data center and rack and stack computers. And our previous video streaming startup was acquired because they're like, how are you encoding video. This is pre-phone. So you had like your USB camera, you had to plug it in and you had to upload, but then you had to transcode your video into FLV, which is the flash video format. And just by chance, total by luck, came across AWS. So they, AWS would just had S3 and they had just went from storage to compute. So we were one of the first beta users of EC2. And it was like magic. It was phenomenal. Like in a command line, I can spin up a virtual server rather than having to negotiate with hardware vendors, get money, and then go to a data center and then rack these computers. And because of that and the success of a previous acquisition, I said when I was at Zynga, if we have eight weeks, like we have to use this EC2 thing. Like there's no other way that we're going to be able to deliver. And in hindsight... What I learned from launching Farmville, because there were many more games that were well-polished and had better game design because we only had eight weeks to launch. The problem then was at that time, there were so much better games. So how are we going to compete? We didn't know that actually having AWS and being up was the actual advantage where Facebook would drive traffic to these other games that were much more polished and had much better game design, but they would fall down because no one understood the amount of traffic that Facebook was driving. So, so you're saying the other games are actually offline when your game was constantly up? The only feature of Farmville was that it was up. That was it. From being up all the time, everyone knew that everyone else was playing Farmville because it was the only game that was consistently up. Uh... And that's really the definition of popularity. And so it was this like psyop kind of thing that we fell back into that we didn't understand. And then from being up and everyone playing, then you can get the data, then you can get the metrics, then you can refine the game. And so I was like, I'm never going back to like racking and stacking my own server. Like now, now of course, clouds are just like default. So when I first heard of Ethereum, I didn't think of it as like crypto. I thought of it as, because it was marketed as a world computer. And I was like, 
oh, you know what's better than like having to manage virtual instances of a computer is just to upload code and forget about it. So I was like, this is the end state for compute, for modern compute in my eyes. And that's kind of how I came into it. So I didn't really come into Ethereum with like money in mind. I came at it with like, okay, reduce coordination from a developer perspective. And that's what fascinated me. And then what hooked me was the DAO. And so, you know, I looked at the DAO and at that time, it was the largest crowdfunding event ever. And I was like, this is amazing. And really went down this rabbit hole of like, okay, I can just upload code. There's these organizations that can come together and like pool money together. Like, what is this crypto thing? And to me, it was about coordination reduction, right? Like, you can just randomly coordinate with like people on the internet that you don't even know. You know, you can move at the speed of thought, really, and organize at the speed of thought. So I was like, this is fascinating. This invention is equivalent to the invention of time, right? Like time is a coordination mechanism that no one owns. And I was like, oh, that's what it means to, and I went down this whole rabbit hole of like permissionlessness, decentralization, and censorship resistance. And so it was doing a project in the advertising space, because when I came off of Farmville, I was like, what really runs the internet? What really runs the internet is advertising. And I was like, wait, you know, if advertising runs the internet, how does it run? And what it came down in terms of like finance is that ads are the, like the smallest form of microtransactions. So I was like, okay, well, the problem with advertising is that there is multiple databases that people can't reconcile. And I was like, you know what we can do is we can have a shared database. And that is what Ethereum was. And so we had this really complex game design of insurance and being able to vet and stake for advertisers. But this was like 2016, 2017. And the regulation was really unclear at the time. Yeah, I'm just curious, like, what was what is that core problem of advertising about not not sharing data? Was it that, like, you're not sure if your ads are being successful because you're not because you're you have to reconcile from like one database to another if this ad that was deployed and looked at was clicked on and and like clicks our money like what can you can you drill down like what what is that core problem that that you're describing there yeah the core problem is that there isn't a shared canonical place and there's these discrepancies and you don't know who to trust so people are like, hey, this is what, I, and who knows if people are fudging the numbers, if they're bots that are actually clicking on ads, like you don't know, right? And so because there isn't like one canonical place where people can actually like go to see where your transactions or the impressions, if you've clicked on something, it's not even about clicks, it's about ad impressions, right? And so with that, we're like, okay, well, we need one database to rule them all. And so this is where like the TCR was born from because we whittled down like we had this insurance and staking and all of that but because this is 2016 2017 the regulatory environment was super unclear and tcrs just for tcrs being token curated registries right yes and and so and in this case the token uh so using some sort of like shared uh unit of account that we can decide uh which things are trusted and vetted by the community versus which things are not Right? Is, is, is that the core idea? Well, so what happened with TCRs and what we understood that like we, we needed curation because ultimately with, with advertising, you don't know if someone is loading a page, it's a bot or not. 
And so we needed to rely on humans to be able to say, this website is legitimate. This website or this advertiser is legit and it needs human curation. So we boiled down TCRs to this like curation game. And at this time, I was working with like Carl Flourish at the time. Now he's in the optimism. But back then they were really thinking about ETH 2.0, right? Like now it's about to happen. But at the beginning, we're trying to figure out like what are the, the staking and slashing rewards. And so a TCR was like the base form of like, and we took a lot of kind of our design from early, early ETH 2.0 research because we needed to, to rely on humans and rely on experts. Uh, and so that's kind of how it, you know, instead of trying to, create a process, we relied on human curation because going down this rabbit hole, there was just all these kind of attack surfaces. So how do we how do we change the nature of the game? So if you think www. I don't know, like website.com is participating in ad fraud, then you would as a human, because you have like the ability, you have some inside information, but you don't want to expose yourself, you can actually buy the token and then say, hey, this is not a legit website. So it was really kind of a whistleblowing mechanism. That is cool. I've never thought, I've never made the connection of like an ETH2 staking list being a, say, token curated registry of valid network participants who will get slashed if they do not behave properly. And that that's really cool that you can think of like the same way to curate a list of honest advertisers and honest network participants based on the same rules that, that's really clever yeah yeah we, we thought of it as like oh we stumbled upon a like a primitive here and so that's why we had the white paper and we were just the first application of it was with advertising uh, but this is way early right like we talked to a, a bunch of these ad platforms and they're like what are you doing like there's no way we're going to ever implement this this is five years ago we've come a long way since then they perhaps weren't seeing as far ahead as, as you were down the line. Yeah, I mean, I was just geeking out on the tech. Like, hey, here's a, we can solve this problem. Like, everyone, just come, you know, if we all play the game correctly, we can solve this major problem, right? Right, and everyone's like, wait, who's going to be the first to adopt? Why, why would we do it and not them? I think that's a, a valuable point to, like, shift into, like, kind of reflecting on what, from your experience working in Web2, like, can we learn as we move into like a web three developer builder world, one of the main things that kind of came up for me during like your intro was working on Farmville, which is obviously an incredibly successful game, right? That you had this really small window to put time into. And I'm, I'm guessing there's a lack of equity in that situation where you created this massively successful thing. And it's like, yeah, but you're a guy that has a job and a paycheck. How does web three solve some of those issues? And like, how do we bring the more equitable models to creators in the Web3 economy? Yeah, that's a very tough question because, you know, we launched Moloch in 2019. So operationally, I've been, I've seen three years of, or three and a half years now of almost three and a half years of DAOs. And what I thought was this like kind of magic bullet and people will coordinate has not really uh, happened. And so I think there's hope still, but it takes a level of, I guess, and this is more philosophical, a matter of self-awareness, right? Because I, I think what we've seen like in this last cycle was a lot of hopium and optimism, but a lot of people that, you know, find opportunities to exploit the system. So it's like, you know, I go back to like Google, right? Like my wife, she was 
doing a search engine and we thought search engines were done and then Google comes along, it's Google's tagline was don't be evil, right? And I, I think that there's a lot of market forces. There's, you know, this kind of unintentional side effects that we have to be careful with. I think that, you know, just to take a step back when it comes to DAOs, I've seen and talked to a lot of DAO people. And what I decided to do was kind of take a left turn a little bit. And so I wanted to look, take a look at successful Web2 companies. So arguably, Amazon is somewhat successful. I don't have access to Jeff Bezos, but I get mentored by his chief of staff that his name is Colin Breyer. He actually wrote a book called Working Backwards. You know, what he says is that there's two decisions that you have to like categorize. There are one-way doors in which when you walk through them, you cannot walk back. So you have to make sure that you take your time to ensure that like when you make these decisions, you know, it's very intentional. And you have to be thoughtful with those. Then there's two-way doors where you can iterate and it's okay to make mistakes, right? And so I think that there is right now a lot of people with DAOs, they're like, hey, we don't know what this is about. Let's just iterate and let's experiment. But I think that uh, in a lot of ways, uh, you have to be careful in terms of knowing if it's a one-way door or a two-way door. Do you have a, an easy example of like a one-way door versus a two-way door? I think the idea of you know these stable coins that were from a mechanism design weren't solid and that's a one-way door that a lot of people lost a lot of money in that from like a smart contract and that's one of the objectives of like or a feature or a bug whatever you want to call it it's a immutability right like those are one-way doors that have huge consequence designing a truly supposedly truly autonomous system that is supposed to keep a currency stable right and like if you if you don't do the modeling in advance if you don't understand the 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 space that can throw that system into an unstable meltdown yeah that can shake the confidence well one like you said lose a bunch of people money but also yeah shake shake the perhaps shake the confidence in the system for for a lot of people right like if there's a model that we can point to is like this is fundamentally a stable point because it's designed like this as a primitive versus this is an algorithmic stable coin or something like it's a new take on a stable coin you're like Wait, no, it's it's actually not a stable coin. What about like Gitcoin voting? Like to me, that could be kind of like a, a two-way door where it's like iterating on civil resistance and commitment voting and conviction voting where it's like our goal here is not to keep the entire system stable. It's to try to like fairly allocate funds. And like if we unfairly allocate funds in grant round 13, we can try to fairly allocate funds in grant round 14. But that, that's probably a place where we can iterate versus a place where it's like, let's deploy this system and hope that it doesn't crumble. Yeah, it's interesting. My, my take on how we launch a DAO from an organizational perspective has wildly changed. I thought that like, okay, if we just create like a good, solid system, it'll be fine, right? Now, those are one-way doors. Like you say, okay, when you launch the system, this is how the system will work in perpetuity. It doesn't take into account how organizations evolve and how situationally things will evolve, right? Like cultural norms evolve as well, right? And so those are one-way doors that we want to be really careful with. And so I, 
instead of going down this rabbit hole of complex mechanism design, what I've learned and what I have kind of like decided was like, you know what? I don't want to even deal with these one-way door conversations. I will do deal with two-way door conversations. These two-way door conversations when it comes to DAOs and kind of my current thinking right now, which could change, is that it should be all retroactive distribution because the, the market will change, people will change, incentives will change. Do you mean as far as like airdrops, like token governance? So my idea here coming from like DAOs and governance has evolved or devolved, however you want to take a look at it, into decentralized IDs and verifiable credentials. So I think, and this is probably a hot take, and actually there was a really good podcast on Bankless with Evan from Disco and Vitalik, where we talk about soulbound tokens. Like giving someone a soulbound token is something that you, you maybe can undo, but the whole notion of it is that it's non-transferable. These are one-way doors, right? Where I think that with verifiable credentials, which I consider off-chain NFTs, allows a user to have selective disclosure and have the sovereignty principles uh, or values that you know hold up in, in, in Crypto Web 3 uh, to decide what to put on chain rather than, you know, having someone give you something. I understand and I fully respect the ideas of like needing negative reputation within a system, but like you are espousing human values with the soulbound token. You're like, we don't care about consent. Like you're given this thing, I'm going to give it to you and that's it, right? And what does that mean from a human values perspective? And I think like people don't think about like mechanism design from a values trait. You know, when you think about like what kind of spurred on this last market cycle in DeFi with Yearn was like Andre Kranji, for whatever he's doing now, he did a, a fair distribution, right? He was like, I, I don't even own any of these tokens. He did kind of a, a crowd surfing where he's just like, okay, I'm going to give it to you all. And like, if you trust with what I'm doing is correct, maybe I'll get something back in the future. There was this inherent value of trust that was baked into the system. So I, I think that, you know, with token and mechanism design, you, 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 we think of it as purely transactional, but there are human values that you are actually kind of embedding that I don't think we talk enough about because we, we're so geeked out on like, you know, let's do this mechanism, quadratic voting, civil resistance, all these things, which are important and we need to figure out. But I think that uh, we have to take a step back sometimes. And with these like things that we launch, we are inherently or implicitly like advocating for certain values, whether we know it or not. Do you think that the, oh, sorry. Do you know, do you, do you think that the off-chain nature of something that's more like a verifiable credential is more valuable in like building up a reputation in a system so that you can like choose when and who you disclose your your role to versus something where you're building up a reputation in a fully like a uh, on-chain way. Yeah, I thought that like your identity and reputation is anchored by an identity. And then from that identity, you pin verifiable credentials like your reputation too. I, I'm now kind of of the mind where I kind of flip that around where I think like you have these verifiable credentials. It's just like an event log of what you're doing on the internet. So uh, with Collabland, we're wanting to move heavily into verifiable credentials. So actions that you take off chain, like in Discord or 
you know, uh, anything like emoji replies or whatever the case may be can turn into a verifiable credential. And then it's only in retrospect, and maybe this is, I'm clouded by, you know, this whole retroactive distribution, but on an individual level, you're like, in retrospect, I don't know the actions that I'm doing, if they're going to be valuable or not until later on. And so I can say, okay, I can take this grouping of verifiable credentials and I can group them together to form a reputation and then with this reputation, I can pin that to an identity. That is clever. I'm now geeking out on the idea of a verifiable credential-based airdrop where it's uh, like on Optimism, the airdrop was like, if you've been in a governance, if you've been in uh, multisigs, if you've used Optimism, if you've used Polygon, I'm imagining an airdrop where it's like, if you can prove with a verifiable presentation or a group of verifiable credentials that you meet these five qualifications, you get the airdrop. But maybe nothing even has to go on chain. It's just like a proof based on retroactive activity. And that cuts down it. One, I think it cuts down on the activity that we have to like put on chain. And two, it like allows people to keep it private. Like, uh, I think that'd be that'd be a really fun. Uh, that'd be a really fun airdrop mechanism. Yeah. So that's what we're working on at Collabland. I don't mean to shill too heavily, but no, please shill. We at Collabland do this kind of really basic form of token gating, which has taken off. Right. And it's become a thing. Right, because it's it's all about coordination reduction, and now we're moving to not only doing it for things that you have on chain, but things that you have off chain, right? And so that you can actually be in a Discord or a Telegram chat, and people can send you verifiable credentials, and then we're having an SDK where you can actually one line JavaScript on a Mint site, right? And then you can define as a site owner, okay, how could you gate with verifiable credentials? And so I think this gives it a, a lot more looseness and arbitrariness, like, okay, well, oh, there's not a lot of people that minted because they had these VCs. Well, maybe we'll change it up and we'll have and update the VCs. And you can now port the actions that you do on Discord to a website, right? And I think this is kind of the future where I know that we want to all build Web3 native platforms and it's going to take a while. And I think for I guess, for the namesake of abridged, right? Taking these shortcuts. This is why we have this bot on Telegram, on Discord. But just imagine having a bot on Reddit, which we are in alpha on, and GitHub, right? So you can have these verifiable credentials. I submitted this PR on GitHub. I responded to this thing on Reddit. I helped this community out on Discord. These VCs could all be grouped now across these siloed platforms. And now these VCs are these event logs that culminate in a reputation that give you access to something else. And you choose when and what to cherry pick from your activity log to form that reputation. That's really cool. You, you as a user get to choose that or the moderators of the projects? So as, as a moderator of a project, it's all about creating these shelling points, right? You as a moderator of a project say, I want people that have exhibited X, Y, and Z behavior. You as a user have selective disclosure where you get to decide what do I want to disclose and then be able to like get that mint if it's worth it to me. So it's just creating shelling points along the way here. And it's gas efficient, it's cross-chain, and it's this wider movement, I think, that goes beyond privacy. And this is where it's interesting because, I mean, like now in the zeitgeist in mainstream media, we're only understanding surveillance capitalism. We only are beginning to understand what it means to have privacy, right? Um, and then you juxtapose that against like a blockchain where everything is fully transparent. So how do you 
how do you balance that anonymity versus like that transparency? These are the like trying to frame them as going back to like one way and two way doors. The features that we implement are they two way doors or are they one way doors? So we want to experiment a lot with the different two way doors to inform us of like okay, which one way doors do we want to go through? And so this is why for me. I'm a little hesitant with like soulbound NFTs at the moment because I don't fully understand the second order kind of repercussions of consent, of privacy,、uh, of correlation that can happen here. So I noticed a trend in decentralized identity over the last few years. Initially, a lot of projects were putting a lot of stuff just directly on chain, and this was like this was kind of pre VC spec or like early days of VC spec. A verifiable credential spec. A lot of stuff was on chain, but it seemed like since not not a lot of other applications were on chain, it seemed like there was actually limited use to having this information on there, and it seemed like people were just paying gas fees for nothing in order to put this this data on chain. And we started seeing kind of like roll ups of of information where it's like, okay, like we're gonna we're gonna give you these like credentials, but we're gonna occasionally anchor this on chain. And like a lot of the people in like the VC community were doing these kind of like、uh, I think like、um, What is it? Element and、uh, Ion DID specs. I think like yeah, batch updates in, in in like large batches on chain, which is like nice for an anchoring perspective, but not so nice from like a composability perspective. And like over time, like less and less stuff I saw going on chain in the VC space. And then I noticed when the whole when the DeFi summer and all that craziness started happening, it seemed like a lesson to me was like. A lot of the DeFi applications were working because they were putting stuff on chain that maybe was not necessary, but it allowed people to kind of like piece together something like Yearn, which allowed you to do some like build some like big composable tool. And I, I like what you're, what you're talking about about like allowing people to selectively bring stuff on chain to make it able to be composable. But I just I just noticed that trend, and I thought that perhaps the decentralized identity space was missing out on something because they were moving so much stuff off chain. That you lose out on kind of that on-chain composability of something like a like a urine strategy. Yeah, I think there's going to be a balance here because when you think about things off-chain, where is it stored, right? And when it's on-chain, you know it's like on a blockchain, and the miners are going to, you know, do the validation, and it'll be in a block, and all of that. So what happens is, I think it's a user experience issue. Right, because now you're putting more responsibility on the user to show, like, decide where things are going to be stored, to be able to, like, say, hey, this is my IPF hash or whatever the case may be, or it's in a database somewhere, right? So I think, I mean, we haven't even solved private key management yet, and now you're adding more responsibility on. Okay, you own your whole reputation, and if you tie your reputation to a key, like, what does that mean? Well, speaking of private key management, I remember I think the first time that I met you was when we were talking about the wallet. Was it like it was a, a bridge of the wallet, right? Where you could rotate your keys and you could have gasless functionality and and kind of like working on solving that that problem. And I'm I, I think I've I've seen now some of those features slowly get implemented into wallets. But I feel like you, another case where I think you were very like ahead of ahead of the time on like wallet functionality and wallet features. And I'm curious like how that. What features you saw that needed to exist, and like kind of where where are wallets now in private key management, and have we gotten to the point、um, with like I don't know like Taurus and Magic, like is that sufficient for bringing private keys to the masses? Yeah, I mean it's really just kind of <laughs> it's a very nuanced conversation to have because I think there this this 
context of what are the short, medium, and long-term wins here, Vitalik just dropped a note uh, with regards to a new EIP with uh, regards to like, how do you do a proper account abstraction, which means that like you have a smart contract wallet. I think that, you know, that is the future and, you know, private key management is something that people need to be aware of. But like when you're starting out, you have zero ETH, zero funds, and you have this huge responsibility, it just creates this psychological barrier, right? And so people go to custodial solutions because that's what we're used to now, right? And this is how practically you can onboard people because all they know is forgot my password. Why does not that work with crypto? So it, it's, a, it's easy to conflate the UI UX with like, you know, the values of like self-sovereignty with just the practicality of the user experience. And so for us, you know, at Collabland, I mean, this is why we're just trying to figure out, like, what are the best shortcuts? So that's why we have a bot. We believe in, you know, proper account abstraction, and we're working through that. Majority of uh, Collabland users that are in, like, a Collabland bot-managed community, they don't even have a wallet. They don't know how to download MetaMask. They don't know how to obtain ETH, or they don't have the patience to wait to get KYC and to get the bank and then all of that, but they know how to join a Discord server. So how do we how do we get them crypto, maybe a very small amount of it, quickly? And I think that this is kind of a an off-topic thing. I think that uh, you know with DeFi, everything is about over collateralization, right? I think that there is a, a problem space to explore with decentralized IDs and verifiable credentials to have a kind of credit rating for uncollateralized or undercollateralized loans, small amounts potentially. But you have to be careful because you don't want this, uh, you know, Black Mirror episode of everyone like having this like social credit score kind of thing. So these are like the one-way, two-way doors. How do you experiment and be able to go back and forth without cementing this like dystopic exploitative functionality right right if you unleash that as a paradigm and it takes off and then and you can't go back from it like what have you done right that's right makes a lot of sense yeah so i want to talk a little bit more about some of the projects you see in as really important to the dao ecosystem like what are some and, and what are some areas that we we really need to address i think we need to address uh a lot of like, I know we're experimenting, but like, I think the human factor of, of DAOs, I think we're starting to see this with seasons, but like when you have a DAO and like there's no end in sight, how do you manage your mental health? <laughs> Basically, it's like a marathon that never ends. You mean like contributor burnout, just like, like yeah. continually going, building, driving forward. Yeah, yeah. And, and everyone's super passionate, but we're all human beings, right? Like, uh, how, do, how do we manage that? I don't think that enough is said about that. I think it's beginning to, like, in, like, the traditional Web2 space. We just came back from, like, the, this whole conference circuit last week in, in New York. And I think there was, like, this we're at the airport and I just picked up this magazine from Fast Company where they're talking about, like, mental health and Web2, like, startups and mental health. And I was like, this is 
not different than in like Dao space, right? And because we're all human beings. And I think with just coming out of this like backdrop of COVID, being home all the time and being online all the time was great for like people getting interested in Dao's and understanding like, what is this thing? Because they have more time at home. And a DAO is really an internet native organization. Like, what is this? But then, you know, we don't have proper, you know, kind of onboarding when it comes to organizations. And we don't have proper frameworks in terms of how people can kind of level up. I think we have great frameworks when it comes to gaming. And maybe we can take lessons from there. And we are seeing that with like different seasons, right? And I think a lot of thought has been already put into kind of the live ops of games that can be applied to DAOs. And I think that could be a beginning, but that might be my gaming background being, you know, just a little bit confirmation bias there. But I think there's some good nuggets there. I mean, let's go there for a minute. Like, what do you see that comes from gaming that could work really well here? Like, what's applicable? I think having a DAO tutorial level, (laughs) right? You're like, okay, this is what you do, and this is how you level up, right? And then having a progression path. You know, there's this kind of, in game design, you want to hit that dopamine like 15 seconds and then a minute and then an hour and then a day, 30 days. So this is why you have metrics like DAU, MAU, you know, one day, three day, seven day, 14 day, 30 day retention, right? These are applicable to DAOs. And I think it's just needs to, I, I think that we just need to tweak what exists by like 15, 20% rather than like scorched earth and like saying, hey, we got to start from ground zero. And I think that would allow a lot more people that have a lifetime of experience when it comes to coordinating users in a fictional universe, because a DAO is really just like a multiplayer video game, but it's inverted where the game is actually in real life. That's kind of how I think about it. That's how it feels. <laughs> yeah. I love the idea of like, uh, I haven't played a ton of games, but like a couple of years ago, I played a couple seasons of, of, of Fortnite and like that that mechanism design that you're talking about there, like it, it just works so well where it's like, this is a season, I don't have to commit for the rest of my life, but maybe I'm going to try to set a goal of like getting to level X within the next two months. And when I start playing this game, maybe I'm playing against people that are that are also new and are and like maybe it's in a playground where it's okay if I if I like die all the time because the stats don't matter. But yeah, I love the time boxing and the tutorials that that's that'll be I'm seeing a bright future for DAOs where it feels much more like that. It's just, it's going to take a little bit. Yeah. I guess that's why when I go and play Dark Souls with like Ven, it's like, he's always at the highest level. And I'm like, I can't do this. I give up. Cause it's like, it's already beyond the point where I'm going to be able to engage and like progress that it's too frustrating. Well, I joined the video game uh, DAO chat for a little bit with Ven and it was, brought me into a video game where I was a new player. I had no clothes. I had no resources. I kept getting like killed by goblins. But like Ven and some other Dao folks were just kind of like brought me to their shelter where they already built a nice house and they gave me some ant and they gave me some armor and stuff. And like it kind of mirrored the Dao experience. And I'm getting kind of why things like metagame exist and stuff like that because being kind of on, on the border between those places, we, there's so many lessons that I think people enjoy from from games like that. That will be um, nice when you're onboarding them into something. It's like, no, this this is just how your job works now too. Your job is now uh, you just make you make money by doing this. You share resources this way. It's going to be a really fun future. I I love watching that happen to people too. Like when someone jumps in, we have a scribe that we've been working with at Logos 
who like six months ago was writing a blog for fun. And now it's like jumping in, learning about DAOs, learning about the technology and being like, wait, I can do like interviews about different DAOs and find out what they're up to and then write about it and get paid for it. Like this is actually like kind of leveling up a my career, my technical knowledge, and b also like allowing me to do something that I'm really excited about, which is creative writing. So you see them like get their tools, right? They got their like their arrows and their their level up points and stuff. And then they're starting to get crypto in their wallet. And they're like, oh, like, this is like now sustainable, like I can actually work for this, these organizations, these projects, and contribute like the time according to what I want to, right? Instead of like, we hired you to do a job, like go do the job. These are the things you're supposed to do and, and don't, don't don't talk to us until you've done it. It's like, what do you want to do? Here's things that we need done as an organization and do it on your timeline. And if it works with us continually, we'll continue to feed projects in and 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 have that nice symbiotic relationship basically as a player, as in, in a player ecosystem. Yeah, I, I would highly recommend there's just like 15, 20 years of this like game design uh, from Raf Koster. The Theory of Fun is his seminal book. And he sp- spoke at GDC for many, many years. You can listen to the audio online. And he talks about like just sustainability. And a lot of it is super applicable to DAOs. And, but like, I feel like we're making the same mistakes because we're like, we're Web3. It's totally different, right? But it's not because you're dealing with human coordination. And then also uh, recently stumbled upon Yancey Strickler. He was the CEO of Kickstarter. And he wrote a manifesto two years ago. And I stumbled across him because he wrote a blog post, uh, FWB. And he wrote this blog post called After Crypto. You know, I get what he's saying. And I understand the framing of it. And when you look at his book, which I highly recommend, it talks about, and I think this is where DAOs can actually be beneficial, right? It's more communal. It's like you're getting work done, but it's not purely transactional. And so there's there's this like cooperative kind of mode that uh, we have a generation of people growing up on video games that if we kind of like frame it in that way, I think there's a better chance of adoption. This is where I think there's this kind of intersection with decentralized IDs and verifiable credentials. Like if you're willing to work sweat equity wise, you don't even need a wallet. You can just be in a chat and then you get pilled and then like, then you're given like a loan of like, I don't know, a couple of bucks, right? And this is where the, I think the next kind of unlock here is like, how do you use reputation IDs, verifiable credentials to service for like under collateralized loans? Because with blockchain, you, you can't, you can't give someone quote unquote credit and you can't necessarily be in debt, Right. And this is why Maker has been successful and a lot of these DeFi protocols with over collateralization because, you know, there's no sense of that. And I think that that is, and I could be totally wrong, but my intuition says like, this is kind of like next cycle stuff that I'm trying to really investigate right now. I really think that'd be cool. Like imagine a tipping bot on Discord where it's like, oh, this person came and like, oh, they just need a few bucks for gas. Tip bot, loan this person this like few bucks. Maybe just give, but give them the opportunity to also pay it back and have that also be a credential. Be like, wow, this person paid it forward, like a pay it forward bot. <laughs> just give someone the crypto to onboard. And go ahead, yeah, yeah. And then we should probably wrap up. This is just too fun, but uh, we should probably wrap in a minute. Yeah, I wanted, I wanted to just throw out one more question as kind of a visionary because James, you are such a visionary. 
look forward into society five or 10 years, what elements do you see that have been impacted significantly by the creation of DAOs? Feel free to be specific or keep it loose. I, I think we're, I don't know if what we're doing by having everything be globalized on the internet, if that's a necessarily good thing, right? So you have these economy of scale where you have like dating apps where before you would go locally to find someone, but now you have this global reach, but those are in the hands of like these few corporations. And it's not that like these corporations are centralized. It's what you're doing is you're taking local economies and instead of keeping the economics locally, right? Like when you go to Starbucks, you're paying for that coffee. That mom and pop shop is no longer there where that mom and pop shop would have kept the economy localized. It would fund that community, right? I think there is an opportunity with DAOs to kind of create that equilibrium where you keep, you, you keep that economy stable. And it's not like you're gutting these these communities online. I think really when I think about what is it about a, a, a DAO that is so powerful, it's having your own governance and your own money local within that closed loop system for those that are participating in it. Then you have the potential for meritocracy. And I think that's where you can better align incentives. And, you know, the big win is being able to create those coordination mechanisms to solve real problems, right? Like being idealistic. How else are we going to solve climate change? Like, really, right? What, what, what's the optionality we have in terms of technology to do that, you know? And so th these are the, the big, big questions. Uh, I think that, I don't know, maybe this is because now I'm a parent and I not only see things through my eyes, but my children's eyes, like, okay, I can do stuff, but what world am I going to leave? So it's these kind of like philosophical kind of pay for things that, you know, I wrestle with because, you know, those are super long incentives and you have to make sure that those get aligned with like what's happening in the here and now to make things practical. So this is the balance that we have with like, you know, going back to Collabland, right? We don't have our own website where we're driving traffic. We're just going where people are already at. That's kind of the hack, right? They're already in Discord, Telegram, you know, all these different platforms. They spend hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars over the lifetime of the company for great UI UX. Why are we trying to reinvent all of that right now? Why don't we just leverage it? So it's like trying to find these like kind of equilibriums here. And so when it comes to DAOs in the next five or 10 years, I don't think we know what they look like. I don't think we really understand what that means. I mean, like I just came back from New York. There's NFT NYC, DAO NYC, Ethereal, and ETH New York. These ecosystems don't really know about each other. But why can't a DAO leverage the mainstream appetite of NFTs? And why can't NFTs learn more about solid primitives in DeFi to become sustainable, right? And I think there is, and at Collabland, we're sitting in this like intersection if there's a Venn diagram of these three ecosystems that we're getting pulled in many different directions. 
And so this is where I try to be as thoughtful as possible in terms of features so that you know, we're not overweighted too much uh, from one ecosystem or another, but try to provide that, that appropriate balanced blend. Perfect. I think we'll have to do a part two of this, but I wanted to say thank you so much for coming in and sharing this perspective with us. Yes. Thanks for having me. Hope you enjoyed today's episode of Dow or Never. Make sure to subscribe at logos.xyz slash podcast and follow us on Twitter at 0xlogos so you never miss out on any of the latest happenings in the Dow world. It's Dow or Never. Never.